Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. you in front of you and open with me to Psalm 119. You'll find it on page 512. We're going to look just at verse 18. The psalmist says this, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. Would you pray with me? Father, we come now to the point in our service where we continue to worship you through your word. A word that is a portrait, a window, glasses to see and behold you. To know what you've been doing and what you are doing and what you will do. So help us, Lord. Help us to hear from you. We pray not only for ourselves, but Father, as we always do, we love to pray for the the bride of Christ across both our city and the nations. And Father, we pray specifically this morning for New Elm Baptist Church. Pray for this congregation, asking that you would help them to be a people that love you. And because they love you, they love to be people who invest time in the word. So they might rightly understand you, Father, so that you might stir them up with love and delight of you that leads them to go to their neighbors and proclaim Christ. Father, we pray not only for them, but we pray for Knollwood Presbyterian Church in Alabama. Father, we pray for this congregation. Father, that they would be a people that, again, delight in the God who has saved them. Father, that they would not think, Father, merely as your word, as a means to get out of hell, Father, but as a call to a great, grand narrative of your glory. And Father, we pray not only for them, but we want to pray for the nations. Father, we pray for the Mandura people of Indonesia. And Father, we ask that you would be among these people. Father, these millions of people who very few of them have ever heard the name of Christ. Father, Father, many of them, Father, believing there is a God because you have revealed yourself in creation, but not hearing of Christ, Father, they are damned. And so we want to be those who are heralds of Christ. So we pray that the church would be sent to these people, maybe even one day sending one of us. Father, we close asking for ourselves that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the word of God. We ask these things now for your glory, for our joy, and for the exaltation of Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the 16th century, one of the most incredible things in the history of the world happened. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said this. He said, one must not ask the Latin what God's word says, but read it in the German tongue. Now you're like, Latin, German, what does that have to do with me? What he's saying by this, he's saying that every person needs to be able to read God's word in their native language. Up to this point in the history of the church, the the scriptures were held captive by the church. 
Because they were translated into Latin and obviously in the Greek and Hebrew, the original languages. And, and the common day man could not read those languages. And, and one of the things Luther brought about in the Reformation is the Bible in the language of the people. This massive work he began to do to undertake the Greek and the Hebrew and translate it into German it was also undertaken by Tyndale in England. And numerous other languages have been translated from the scriptures. And praise God. Because of their labors and the labors of many, we now hold God's word in English. This is a gift, saints. This is a gift, friends, that we are the beneficiaries of this great, beautiful work. Yet I wonder if we need to remember yet another great 16th century discovery. And that of Copernicus. Copernicus was a a mathematician in this time of the early 16th century, and he discovered that the earth was not the center of the galaxy. To us, we're like, well, yeah. But for thousands and thousands of years, people thought the earth was the center of the universe, the galaxy. And he, through studying and through mathematical equations, he began to discern that, guess what, the earth was not the center, but the sun was. Does that strike you as odd to think that so many people believe the earth was the center? But see, that's the interesting thing. See, when you're in the midst of something that you've seen your whole life, you often can become accustomed to something and not even realize it's wrong. And what if I said that many of us, because of the blessing of God's word in our own language, we've unfortunately not been reading it as God intended? I'm going to try to prove this to you in a couple different ways. Many people read our Bible simply as a superior set of principles. Thinking that the nature and purpose of the word is to tell us to stop doing this and start doing that. Now, while the Bible, yes, it's full of principles, things to do and not to do. Reading God's word this way keeps you at the center of your solar system. Reading God's word simply as a superior set of principles, like how to have a better family, how to use your words more wisely, or any multitude of different things, produces only legalism and moralism. It creates a people who are unable to differentiate between first and second tier issues. It turns people into self-righteous jerks. Others may read the Bible simply as a means for a new power to get what I want to do. Right? They read the Bible and they desire to see God do great things in their life. And they often see some things in their life. But the Bible describes God's people as having an absolutely new power. You're absolutely right. It's called the power of the resurrection. Paul echoes this in the New Testament. But here's the interesting thing about the power of the resurrection. It says it comes at a cost. You must die to yourself. That there must be a transformation of the agenda of your heart. Yet others read the Bible simply as a gateway of self-worth. And validation. They believe God saw something in them that they didn't see in themselves. And that's why he came. The Bible speaks immensely about our identity and you and my value. Absolutely. It says these things. But if you read the Bible simply for self-worth, you are still the center of your own solar system. And Christ has been merely relegated to the side. And probably one of the most predominant in our culture is that we see the Bible as merely a shield 
to prevent pain, suffering, and ultimately hell. Yes, they absolutely see hell as a horrible place. And they absolutely see Jesus as the only way they can be not in hell. But they only view him in light of self-preservation. Again, this primary problem is that they read the Bible and they are still the center of their own solar systems. Did you notice that, that while we receive this Bible in our own language, you and I have this glorious gift. We can read God's word apart from God's design. And anytime we read God's word and try to understand it as revolving around us, there will always be significant problems. Yes, we may understand lots of doctrines, and yes, we may understand structures of the Bible, but if we are the center of the Bible and we are the very thing it's speaking about, then we've missed the whole point. Yes, it takes truth and principles that we need to read and understand, but we cannot be at the center. You see, we cannot use the Bible to fuel the engine of wherever our pride wants to go. We need... To understand the Bible does not revolve around human beings. And we, like the people before Copernicus, we need a reality check as to God's intention and purposes in his word. God's word does not revolve around us, but God. God is the center of scripture. God and his glory are the ultimate reality of all of life. And God has revealed this to us in his word so that we might see his plan of redemption culminating, climaxing in Jesus Christ. And so over for the next four weeks, we're going to try to spend some time looking into God's word and understanding the word, the preacher, the teacher, and you, the listener. Do you realize God actually is going to teach us from his word how you were to sit there and respond to his word? Have you ever thought about that? If not, then you could be missing the whole point of you sitting there right now. But we need to start with the word. What is the word of God? Well, it is the glory of God. The word of God is the glory of God. So we're going to spend some time, and and, and I'm going to have a lot of verses. There are going to be many of them up on the screen. If you want to try to flip with me, you can try. But we're going to take a big, grand look at the whole of Scripture. And we're going to move through that together so that we can understand. Now, even before we begin, though, I I want us to see there's a difference between reading God's word and reading God's word as he intended it. Did you pay attention to verse 18 of Psalm 119? Look at it if you still have your Bibles open again. The psalmist says something very unique here. He says, open my eyes that I might behold the wondrous things out of your law. Was the psalmist blind? Was he un? Able to see? Like he literally could not see the words on the page? Well, no, clearly not. We know this psalmist was not blind. So what was he asking for? He's saying, open my eyes so that I might see something in your word that's wonderful, that's wondrous, that's glorious. He asked God to open his eyes to behold wondrous things in his instruction. We must understand that merely reading words on a page is never enough, brothers and sisters. 
You could read the thes and the gods and the Damascus and the Pauls and, and all the words on Scripture and miss the whole point of Scripture. Instead, this psalmist, he desired to see something different, something wondrous, he calls it, in God's words. Almost as if there's something greater than the words themselves. We see this same in Ephesians. Paul mentions this same idea. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians in chapter 1, Paul says this same idea, and he adds some freshness to it. He's speaking to the church of Ephesus, and he's praying for them, and he's giving thanks for them. And he says in verse 18, he says this, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what the hope that is to which you have been called. So Paul helps us to understand a little bit of what the psalmist is saying. He says these eyes are not physical eyes. It's the eyes of our deepest core. It's the eyes of our heart. And only God can enlighten them to see something in the word other than the words on the page. Paul asks that the praise that God would have the eyes of their hearts be enlightened. We need to understand we can read the words on the page of Scripture. And if we do not behold wondrous things with the eyes of our heart, you are missing the point of Scripture. You're missing God's primary purpose in his word. And this is interesting because this is one of the major indictments of a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament. From Isaiah to Jeremiah to Hosea to Joel and other prophets would say things like, God's tired of your sacrifices and your festivals. Well, hold on. Didn't you command those, God? And he, and you're saying, we're tired. He says, I desire that you know me and that you love me and that you obey me. The prophet's condemnation against Israel was that they just read the words and went about their day. They missed the point. The purpose of God's word is to reveal God and his glory. So I'm going to try with the help of the Holy Spirit to show us three key things from the scriptures. Three key things. I know that was a little bit longer of an introduction. Three key things in the scriptures. Who is God? Who are we? And why do we have the scriptures? Three questions we're going to ask God to answer for us in his word today. Who is God? Who are we and why do we have the scriptures? First, we need to see the Bible describes that there is actually something that preceded everything. Something that preceded everything. I remember when I went on a trip. And one of the times I came home and I walked into the kitchen, the water was still running. And I walked in, I'm like, the water's still running. And I asked myself, if the water's running, there must have been someone here before me. Because I saw something going on, I knew it just doesn't turn on itself. So I had to say, there must have been someone here before me. And brothers and sisters, this is what all of nature cries out to us. The water's been left on. There must have been someone else here before me. Psalm 90 and verses 1 and 2, here's what it says. It says, Lord, you have been my dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth. You could say before the water was turned on. Or you had ever formed the earth of the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What does that mean? 
That means one of the defining attributes of the God of scriptures is that he is eternal. He has always been. He was there before the water got turned on. He's on. He's there when the water's on and he will always be. What's the big deal with that? Why does that matter? Well, it matters immensely. It matters because he and his unbelievable wisdom and kindness he has so given us his glory to participate in and enjoy and it's woven into the very fabrics of history this is why we can sing you give and you take away in the deserts and on the mountaintops blessed be the name of the lord because you've always been you will always be and i'm attached to you not just the psalmist say this Moses, in in Exodus chapter 3, Moses was the the man appointed by God to go back to Egypt and speak to Pharaoh and rescue God's people after 400 years of slavery and persecution. And Moses is like, well, God, when I show up there, who am I supposed to say you are? How, How will they know I'm talking about you? And this is what he says. Exodus 3 in verse 13 and 14. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent, sent me to you. Then they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me. And we read those words and we're like, Huh? This is the greatest declaration of God's nature. I am who I am. I am outside of. I am greater than. I am self-existent. I need nothing in you or in the world to continue being God. Because I've always been and always will be God. I am. I am Yahweh. The self-existent one. And this is just not an Old Testament truth of God. We could go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17. And Paul encouraging Timothy to continue to preach the good news. He says, one day we're going to go to the kings of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, whose glory and honor will be forever and ever. Amen. Paul believes something and, and to encourage Timothy to keep going when it gets hard. He says, we got a king, dude. He is the king of ages. He is immortal, meaning has no beginning, has no end. He is invisible. He is the only God. And he will have glory and he will have honor forever and ever. Amen. Paul believed that there was a God that preexisted all things. God was there before the water got turned on. And this gave him comfort and delight. I want you to flip to this one, though. Flip to Revelation with me. This one's an important one. I want you to see this. Have you ever noticed the Apostle John, when writing the last book of the Bible, and we see some glimpses into the new heavens and new earth, where all things are going, we see some interesting language. Chapter 21, verse 23. He's describing the new heaven and the new earth. And look with me specifically. We're going to start at verse 22 of chapter 21. It's on page 1041 in the Pew Bibles. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. But pay attention to this. And the city had no need of sun nor moon to shine on it. Stop. Look up. Why? 
New heaven and new earth. God's going to bring back his kingdom and he's going to establish it. All the old is going to be wiped away and all things will be made new. And he says, and by the way, when you get there, you're not even going to have a sun or a moon. Why? Look back what it says. For the glory of God gives its light. And the lamp and its lamp is the lamb. Do you see God's glory that way? As something so amazing, so radiant, so glorious that we will no longer need the sun when he returns? This is not a small thing that God is revealing to us in his word. It's about God's glory. <coughs> Excuse me. God and his glory have been for all time and will be for all time. And God's glory is this. Pay attention. God's glory is the outward display of the perfection of his attributes. It's the outward display of the perfection of his attributes. And I wish I could take you to a whole bunch of texts to show you that. But we see it all over the, the, the Bible. When, when Isaiah was taken to the throne of God, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his And you would think it would say what? Holiness, but it doesn't. It says what? Glory. Glory is the outward display of the fullness of God's perfections and attributes. And he, because he is the eternal sovereign creator, he is the highest reality of all truth. He is the highest reality of all goodness he is the highest reality of all beauty and he has woven that into creation psalm 19 1 says this the heavens declare the glory of god the skies above proclaim his handiwork day to day pours out speech night to night reveals knowledge there is no voice whose speech cannot be heard the heavens the rain yesterday was screaming glory to god The grass that I cut on Friday was singing, glory to God. The birds as they chirp in the morning, glory to God. The breath we breathe should be, glory to God. God is not simply outside of his creation, brothers and sisters. His glory has always been and will always be as we've seen in scripture. But in his kindness, he has woven it into the fabric of creation. This is what Psalm 119 tells us. Or we could look at Proverbs 8 verses 23 through 25. Using the the concept of personification, he, he calls his creation and wisdom this way. He says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first acts of his old Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginnings of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no springs abounding with the water, before the mountains had shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. And this is the very wisdom of God woven into the fabric of creation. So this is the argument the author of Proverbs 8 is making. God isn't distant. God isn't said, I'm glorious and I've given you this earth. Now we've got these two opposing things. He says, no, I've woven glory into nature, in creation. I've woven it into the very fabric of your being, of the grass's being, of the life existence of all things. This is what Romans 1 tells it, does it not? 
This is what Romans 1 says. It says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. How? Ever since the beginning of the world and the things that he's made. God's glory is woven into everything in creation. And what does it say? So you and I are without excuse. So God has always been, God will always be, and God in his infinite wisdom and glory are woven as a pulse into existence for the worship of his name in creation. And we, as his creatures, human beings, are the highest of that creation. So who is God? God is glorious. All perfect, all wise, all knowing, sovereign creator of all things. He is glorious before time and will be until the end of time. And in his infinite wisdom to magnify his glory, he's created. And he's woven his glory into creation. So the question is, who are we? Well, we could go back to the beginning of scriptures in Genesis chapter 1. and verse 27 it says, God created man, human beings, In his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. You were created to reflect the glory of your creator. You, men, women, you were both created to reflect the glory of God. There is worth and dignity bound up in your very imageness. He says it again in Isaiah 43, speaking specifically of the people of Israel. He says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for what? My glory, whom I formed and I made. You and I, guess what we are? We were meant to be participants in the glory of God. Now, did did you hear what I was saying about his glory earlier, what the scriptures were declaring? It's always been, it always has been, it's the most glorious, beautiful, highest truth and goodness and beauty and truth in all the world. And you were created to be attached to that in wonderful ways. We see this described for us in Genesis chapter 2. God speaking about the creation of man itself. It says, then the Lord God formed from the man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. And he became a living Creature. But he says a little bit further in verse 15, he says this. He says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden to work and to keep it. These two words are huge for us. These words are worship and service. Worship and service. How do you, as God's image bearers, enjoy and participate in his glory? You worship his glory and you serve for his glory. That's what these two words in essence mean. This was before all of creation. This is why we were created. To enjoy God and worship and serve his creation for his glory. But something happened, didn't it? We know what chapter 3 said. But have you ever noticed one of the ways the serpent deceived Eve and Adam in the garden? Is he looked at Eve in the garden and he says... This is not true. God knows that your eyes will be what? Opened. Which is kind of funny because we read what the psalmist said and we've read what Paul said. And actually what happened in the garden was not an opening of the eyes to the glory of God, but a what? But a shutting of the glory of God to them their eyes. And have you ever noticed how the Paul speaks to Timothy about the word of God? It is the breathed out word. We need God's word to breathe new life into us again so that our eyes will be open and we're going to be like, there's glory everywhere. Brandon, you see that glory over there? 
And then you read and you're like, man, it's, there's glory everywhere. This is what God does. You see, we have a twisted mind and body and will. You do. Every one of you do because of Adam and Eve. Because of the fall of Adam, you actually have a blinded eyes to the glory of God. This is what he says in Romans, Paul. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him nor give him thanks. But they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They only became fools. And here's what they did. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Birds, animals, creeping things. You think there's glory in your job. You think there's glory in your sports endeavors. You think there's glory in a higher education or greater income or a better family. You think there's glory and there is glimpses of these glory. But the problem is, is you have made these ultimate glory. Because we are blinded by our fallenness. Paul says it perfectly in Romans 3.23. What does he say? For the wages, or for we have all sinned, fallen short of what? The glory of God. Remember, we were to worship it and to serve it. What have we not done? That thing. God's glory, though it cannot be tainted, though it cannot diminish, you act like it doesn't exist. I act like it doesn't exist. Any moment you step without the existence of the glory of God at the forefront of your mind, you are walking in sin. Think about that for a second. That means every moment of my day, I'm walking in sin. God has always been, and God has chosen to weave his glory into the very fabric of creation. And he has created us as human beings to reflect and to participate in this grand story of his glory. But we've rebelled, playing with things, trinkets, trying to act like the kings of our own hearts. We've rejected the glory of God. We've neither honored him nor given thanks to him. And so, how can anything be understood in this world? I mean, think about it. How can anything truly be understood apart from the glory of God? It cannot be. But how how amazing is that God, before the foundations of the earth, he knew all of this was going to be true. He knew that we, he would create everything for his glory, to worship it and to serve it. And he knew that we and sin would reject him. And he knew that he said, believe it or not, actually, I can magnify my glory even more by saving a people who have rejected me. And here's what you need to think of. Wrap your head around this for a second. I'm God created in Genesis because he knew Revelation 22. His end goal was not the first creation. God, before the foundations of the world, was moving all things to the new earth. Because for his glory to be in a full display, there must be both his justice and his love, his kindness and his mercy, his wrath. And his grace. So the Bible is God's way of showing us his glory and redemption. So what are the scriptures? 
They are the means by which God has spoken and revealed to us His redeeming story. God is most glorified through the story of redemption rather than there not being one. Think about that. God in His infinite wisdom, in His infinite grandness, He says, you know what? I'm so glorious and grand and I want to put this on full display so I'm actually going to create a people who are going to rebel. I'm going to enter that creation, redeem them out of that and then pluck them into a new heaven, a new earth where forever we will worship His glory and beauty. And brothers and sisters, you have been called to participate in redemption. We begin to see the glory of God And we see it most clearly and we see it most beautifully in the face of Jesus. This is Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. He says, the God of this world is blinding the mind of unbelievers. Who has veiled them from seeing the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And he says, but we proclaim as not ourselves and we are your servants for Christ's sake. For God spoke light into darkness so that they may behold the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Why do we have scriptures? Because we need a savior. Because we need a redeemer. Because we need a mediator. Because we need a substitute. We need a glorious king. We need the culmination of beauty. We need the wisdom that transcends all wisdom. We need salvation. But how does it do it? Well, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. If you've been here while we've been studying Hebrews, it says some interesting language about the word of God. Hebrews 12, 4 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And here's what that means. It's discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart. This is really interesting. So if we take some of the things we've said and apply it to what The author of Hebrews is teaching us here, when you read God's word and you see something like, the heavens declare the glory of God, it changes the way you look at trees. Because the word begins to just cut away. And it's like, you see green stuff. You see blossoms. You see, what's the process where it creates green and light? What's that called? Photosynthesis. Thank you. I just... I knew it started with P, just couldn't get it out. You see photosynthesis, not merely a science, but a declaration of a God who has woven the wisdom of his glory into photosynthesis. God's word cuts away and you see your wife or your husband in new lights, not just as an object to be loved and be with for the rest of your days, but as a reflection of the union of your salvation and your bridegroom, Jesus Christ. You see your children, you see your work, And the word cuts away and it opens up and it reveals motivations and dissensions in our heart. And it says, God's glory. God's glory. Quit looking there. God's glory. Quit acting that way. God's glory. It creates such an awe inside of us that we want to gladly lay down the temporal things of this world. God's word cuts but only as we see the glory of God in the text. Think of it this way. If God's word is the scalpel, the very tip of that edge is the glory of God, and the edge that is used to cut is the person of Christ. And those things work in tangent to reveal the thoughts and intentions in your heart. And they place new things there. 
So from beginning to end of Scripture, we see this. Right? Think, of, think of Luke 24. Jesus has been risen from the grave, and he decides to show up and go on a journey with these guys on the road to, Emma, uh, the road to Emmaus. If you've ever read Luke 24, it's a really interesting thing. These guys are grieving, they're heartache, right? They're, oh man, Jesus has died. We thought he was going to be deemed the world. And Jesus is walking beside them and, and he's like, oh guys, don't you get it? Do you not understand that the, the Messiah had to die? And he says this to them in verses 27. He says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus walked them through the Old Testament and pointed them to him. And I love what they say later on when God finally opened their eyes to behold it was Jesus. They said, and their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanquished from their side. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us? They had read Moses their whole life, but for the first time they read the Old Testament and heard it taught and explained and they saw the glory of Christ. And the hearts burned within them. What is this that they had opened them? What is this that had caused their hearts to burn? It is Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who is the heir of all things. And the creator of all things. And after making propitiation for sins, He sat down and He is at the right hand of the Father. Until He says, Go. The glory of God is the means by which our heart burns. The glory of God is the means by which you cut away the sin in your life. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is the scriptures. Or we could read John 6, where Jesus himself said these words in verse 65. He says, and he said to them, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, he says, well, do you want to go as well? And Simon Peter, he answered, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And they believed. And I've come to know that he is the Holy One of God. So God has always been and will always be. And he has woven into creation his glory. And he's called us to participate in that glory. But we've rebelled. But praise God, before the foundations of the world, for the magnification of his glory and the joy of his people, he purposed redemption. He planned redemption, and he's inviting us into us. And you know what? This is why we have the word. Redemption cannot be understood apart from the scriptures, which is why we go to the nations, which is why we go to our neighbors, because the trees aren't enough to save them, because the glory of grass isn't enough to save them. They need to hear of the glorious plan of redemption in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why we pray, God, send one of us. Brothers and sisters, his word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light into our path. And it's always shining on the face of Jesus. So what do we do? How do we, 
how do we begin to see this change? We're going to close with this text. Go with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians in chapter 3. I want us to see how Paul describes. You know what? Because we can read the Bible and we can see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And then we can kind of revert back to this idea of reading the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts. And so I want us to see that not only do we need to read it in light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to see the glory of God. But the only way you can love your wife better, the only way you can raise your children appropriately, the only way you can serve your neighborhood, the only way you can stop sinning is to behold the glory of God. So look at it with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He's been talking about the ministers of the new covenant that the old law was like a veil over them. But he says this in verse 18. And we all with unveiled faces... And he's just been talking about the spirit that, that lifts the veil of the law. We see now Christ. He says, with all, we with unveiled faces, we are doing what? Beholding the glory of the Lord. Stop. There's a comma there, right? He says, with unveiled faces, through the God, spirit of God. What is the goal of scripture? What's the goal, brothers and sisters? To behold the glory of God. You read because you want to see more of God's glory. You read the scriptures because you want to behold. And I love this word, behold. It's not like, ah, shucks, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Behold is this heart longing and satisfaction that does this wheel work inside of me that just begins to stir up. And the only way we can respond when we behold is to be transformed. That's what he says. As we behold the glory of God, we are being constantly transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. From this, for this, comes from the Lord who is a spirit. So what's Paul saying? We're saved as we behold the glory of the gospel and the plan of redemption in the face of Jesus Christ. And you change as you keep reading his word. And as you behold more glory and more joy, more beauty and more truth and more wonder and more goodness in the Lord. And his glory just begins to stir around in you, cutting away old things and renewing your hearts and your minds in such a way that you could do nothing but just simply say, God, I'm yours. What do do? I will do whatever, Lord. Take me. Use me. Brothers and sisters, we've got to start reading God's word this way. We've got to believe God's word is exactly what it's described it to be. It is a self-revelation of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite things to do on vacation is go to ice cream shops in local places. Ice cream is one of those like uh, guilty pleasures because you know absolutely what you're eating when you're eating ice cream. No nutritional value whatsoever. But it's so good. And I'm afraid sometimes, brothers and sisters, that if we're confused or we misread God's word, it's simply like eating ice cream. It might seem really good in the moment. You might get this new superior principle. You might feel this momentary new surge of, of inner energy. You might feel all these things. But at the end, it's just simply empty calories if it's devoid of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Look at 
We've got a lot of Christians who don't understand how their lives don't have the strength that it needs, but they keep eating ice cream. This is your call, church, to stop eating ice cream. But read God's word, digging its depth, engaging your mind, engaging your heart, studying in and out, pleading with the Spirit to give you understanding, studying it in and out again, meditating it on the day, going asking, I'm reading this and I don't know what's going on. Help me understand here, coming to Pastor David or myself or older brothers and sisters in Christ here and saying, help me. I want to behold God's glory. I want to be transformed into his image. I'm tired of ice cream Christians. We need glory-enthralled Christians who love his word because we believe the glory of God is our greatest desire in all things. There's numerous ways you could do this. This is why on your bulletins, one of the things Pastor David and I love to try to do is help you with how do I ask the Bible good questions? Do you know every week inside your bulletin are good questions to ask the Bible? Right on the inside little leaflet there. Questions for reading. They change frequently. They help you to learn how to engage the scriptures in a profitable way so that you can read God's word. So as we close, as we draw to an end, I just want to give you a four-word phrase. I guess it would be just four words. I'm going to give you four words. Four words, and I encourage you to write these words down. This is the path that the Bible outlines for us to be transformed, right? This is the path outlined for the Bible, from the Bible that the God calls us to be transformed. First and foremost, we read God's word to behold his glory. Second Corinthians chapter three. We read God's word to behold his glory. Dig church. Dig like it's a treasure that you believe in, you know's there and ask the spirit and I promise you, he will reveal his glory. So we have to behold. That's always the first thing. I read any text and I'm asking, where's God's glory in it? How is it driving me to Jesus? What is it showing me about his infinite worth and value? And then the second thing is that we become renewed in our minds. So we behold and we ask for renewal. This is a category of mind that begins to shift. We see this in Romans 12, right? Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, be transformed through the renewing of your mind. Your mind cannot be renewed if you do not behold God's glory first. Glory, renewal, and then 1 John tells us that there becomes to be a realignment of our affections. Behold God's glory. Our mind begins to have new categories in that word, in the scalpel of God's glory, and Jesus Christ just begin to carve away old affections. And you slowly begin to love things you didn't used to love. And you begin to hate things that you didn't used to hate. And you're like, whoa, how'd this happen? It didn't happen because you're like, change heart. You beheld his glory and he did his work. And I love this last idea. John 17 tells us, Jesus says, Lord, sanctify them in your word. And he said, because I want them to have the joy that I have with you. God's end goal of his glory is our enjoyment of him. So the last thing we're going to behold, we're going to renew, we're going to realign, and we're going to rejoice. When you begin to behold the glory of God in the gospel, it changes the way you'll sing on Sunday morning. I should have to like almost squint my ears because y'all are singing so loud because you truly believe, blessed be the name of our God. 
You should get to work and your, your, your co-workers look at you and you're like, why are you always like sorrowful yet always rejoicing? What, what, what do you mean you can't come on Sunday because you, you want to be with the bride? What do you, why does your life look so different? And you say, the glory of God. Let me introduce you to Jesus. God's glory is the ultimate reality because he has always been and he will always be. His glory was there and his glory will be the sun in the end. Though we have rebelled, brothers and sisters, the scriptures reveal to us he had a purpose. He had a plan. His son who came, who lived, who died, who rose again, who ascended and is now interceding on our behalf. And he's given us his word as the scalpel to begin to behold his glory so that our minds, our hearts might be transformed so that we might rejoice and serve him all our days. I don't know about you, but this is what I want to spend the rest of my days doing. Mining the scriptures for the glory of God. I pray this is your desire too. Let's pray. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.